This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Human Rights, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Renvith, the host of this channel, and today we'll be talking to J.C. Salyer about his new book, Court of Injustice, Law Without Recognition in U.S. Immigration. Um, Welcome to the show. And uh, J.C., I was wondering if you could um, begin this conversation by telling us a little bit about yourself. Yeah. Uh, well, first, thank you so much for having me. I'm a big fan of New Books Network, so this is a bit of a thrill. Um, I, I'm uh, an anthropologist by training. Um, I uh, always sort of focused on immigration uh, in one way or another, um, partly because before I did a PhD in anthropology, I was a practicing immigration lawyer. Um, I have a background in law and um, spent a lot of time um, you know, initially working in the criminal justice system and then working on civil rights and constitutional law. I was a lawyer with the American Civil Liberties Union for a while. Um, and that was actually really where I first encountered immigration law. So um, my background sort of as a lawyer led me in some ways, I think, to get a PhD and try and explore these issues from sort of a more um, broader context than what you're allowed to do as a lawyer. I mean, I love being a lawyer. I love being able to advocate for people and uh, make some, you know, sometimes good law, sometimes help people with problems they have. But at the same time, you know, as I'm sure we'll talk about in the book, you know, they're very limited channels for um, making arguments in law. And that doesn't mean lawyers don't see where the problems in society lie and see where the problems in the law lie but they're just not really an avenue to speak about that in, in your job as a lawyer. So um, I, I, as I was uh, sort of engaging with immigration law in the post-September 11th context, actually, when people were being detained uh, because they were either Muslim, Arab, South Asian, um, in jails in New Jersey, and we were trying to sort of figure out what was happening with them, I... Um, you know, learned that the immigration law system was actually quite different than what I dealt with in other areas of law, in criminal justice even, um, and certainly in constitutional law. Um, And I was sort of naive, I think, because I I sort of, you know, expressed my frustration to some of the immigration lawyers that were helping us um, try and get to the bottom of what was being happening to people in these jails. Um, And it's sort of like, well, just because, you know, September 11th happened doesn't mean they can just throw people's rights out the door. You know, they have to, you know, we still have to have due process. And they kind of looked at me like I was, you know, sort of well-meaning, but very naive. And they're like, no, no, this is kind of what immigration law has always been. Um, And so I, um, decided that that was quite an interesting problem. Um, and I, I went back to school um, and got a PhD in anthropology. And while I was doing that, I started working as a staff attorney for an organization in Brooklyn, the Arab American Family Support Center, where I'm still the staff attorney and run an immigration clinic with them. Um, and so that's sort of how I got to immigration law, both as uh, an academic and a legal discipline. 
Fantastic. Um, and I, I appreciate how um, you've, you've managed to sort of position yourself as well into, um, into jumping right into this, this fantastic book um, and, you know, giving us a little bit of context as to sort of how you, um, how you came to, to this project as well. Um, something that I, I found um, really fascinating, even just in, <laughs> in the introduction, um, was this I guess even just throughout the whole book was this shift in scope, which I think is a particular anthropological um, approach or question, um, you know, from, you know, the, the broader scope of, you know, the U.S. to the more narrow scope in New York, where you're where you're based and where you work. Um, and even just, you know, through time where, you know, you mentioned um, September 11th and then also, you know, the, the book sort of ends um, with the, the Trump administration. Um, so also, you know, shifting, shifting scope through time. Um, and I, I just, I, anyway, I just, I, I really, I appreciated that, um, that scope. And I was just, I was wondering um, if you wouldn't mind talking a little bit about that or even just a little bit more about, um, you know, how you came to, to this to this particular um, project, and I guess just sort of again as a as a follow up um, there, I I really appreciate um, this approach of thinking through uh, immigration law. Um, you know, not just as sort of a dry system, but really thinking about how people experience this. Um, people who are you know the, the hearings, but also the lawyers and the judges, and that also seems uh, you know a very very anthropological uh, a very anthropological question. Yeah, I, th I, mean, I think you bring up two things that really motivated me to address the topic and address it the way I did. So that sort of question of, um, you know, the way immigration is perceived at various times, like after September 11th, um, you know, I, I, coming to it, not understanding immigration law, I thought, you know, everything has changed because of September 11th. And the immigration lawyers I was working with um, you know, sort of corrected that naive assumption of mine and, you know, sort of opened my eyes to the fact that what was happening after September 11th was really um, predicated on the long-standing disparagement of the rights of immigrants. And, you know, even though, you know, perhaps the uh, holding people without access to counsel, holding them without even giving them a charge was sort of extreme, even in that system. It was actually part and parcel of a system that had been operating for a very long time. And I think um, we see that again with the Trump administration. Um, you know, the, the, the scale and the uh, mean-spiritedness of the anti-immigration policies under the Trump administration were spectacular, right? Uh, he, there were no bones about his anti-immigrant uh, sentiments. There were really no bones about his racist uh, underpinnings of his immigration policies. But at the same time, he really wasn't doing anything that wasn't allowed by current law. And he wasn't doing anything that wasn't actually, um, you know, hadn't been foreshadowed in other administrations in their treatment of immigrants. And so, you know, for me, what was important is to sort of tease out those systems, um, the mechanisms by which that came to be the way our immigration law works, and to think about how that works in practice and, and what that means in an immigration case for, an in, for an, uh, a non-citizen who's trying to stay with their family, trying to stay in the country, trying to avoid persecution in their home country. Um, so, I, you know, I think for me, you know, that point you make that there's this sort of trajectory of the law that we have to be aware of. And, and <laughs> it actually made finishing the book almost impossible because every every day as I was trying to finish it, the Trump administration did some new horrible thing. Um, and I had to decide whether I needed to continue addressing that. Um, but because so much of what was happening was part and parcel of a system that has existed for centuries, um, you know, I think you can point to those incidents as examples um, in like the child separation policy, even horrific examples, but nonetheless examples of the way the law has so dehumanized non-citizens that they can be subjected to um, you know, horrific unjust treatment. And we still see that as quote unquote rule of law. So that was sort of one aspect of, of I think, you know, your point that, that really motivated me. 
And then I think that aspect that you raise about the, um, you know, the way that bigger view of the system then has to be sort of broken down at the individual level, how we have to say, yes, this is a horrible, um, you know, way of treating people as a whole. And that the immigration law system, if you look at it as a black box, is motivated by lots of things that are very nasty in American history, right? That, um, you know, the earliest immigration law was the sort of naturalization law and like the 1700s that made it unlawful for anyone who wasn't, a, you know, a white free person to become a citizen. Um, and that sort of racist underpinning we saw, you know, replicated again and again with the Chinese exclusion bar, the Japanese or the Asian exclusion uh, bar and the Chinese Exclusion Act. Um, and so, you know, we we can look at immigration law as a whole and say, yes, there's this is really problematic. But at the same time, within that bigger system, people are still having to advocate for themselves and their advocates and their lawyers are still having to advocate for them. And, um, you know, in that area, yes, we see examples of the injustice, uh, injustice that gets carried out in these uh, courts. But at the same time, sometimes people are able to uh, expand or push that law in a way that allows for the recognition of rights, allows for the the context of people's lives and recognize that they are entitled to some kind of relief, some kind of protection or some kind of recognition. And so really, um, you know, trying to balance those two things um, you know, is, 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 was one of my big motivations, I think. I wanted just to, to also um, follow up on something that you, you quickly said um, uh, just now, and also that was in the book. Um, and I was wondering if you could just briefly um, maybe just explain some of the the surprise that you encountered um, with uh, working with immigration law after um, your work uh, with constitutional law. Um, just for for those of us who are sort of outside um, outside the legal profession who may not understand these these differences. Um, I apologize. I did not hear that. The uh, connection was not great. Oh, I'm. I'm so sorry. Um, I don't know what's what's going on with this um, <laughs> with the internet. Um, let me see. This is where the the benefit of of edits comes in later. Right. Where we can make this all all nice and smooth. Um, yeah, I was. Uh, I'll I'll reask um, the question, and this also gives me the the benefit of of smoothing it out too. Um, I was. I'm wondering about um, something that you that you mentioned uh, just now, and also something in the book, which is about um, the the surprise that you encountered um, in in uh, engaging with immigration law, um, which I, I think also the surprise feels very anthropological to me. Um, but you know, what what sort of was the the differences um, that you encountered, you know, with with immigration law that you know a shift away from constitutional law? Just you know, a, a brief a brief explanation or a brief I don't know summary of that for those of us who um, who are not lawyers and who might not necessarily understand the context of of that surprise. Yeah, um, that's a great question, um, and you know, and like I say, it really did sort of motivate me to move into this area, both as a lawyer and a scholar. Um, you know, so, you know, in some ways, you know, we can understand that there's a lot wrong with society. Um, but at the same time, you know, if you work for an organization like the American Civil Liberties Union, or if you are a uh, criminal defense lawyer, you know, presumably you have not given up the hope that, you know, within that system, you are able to make some change, that you are able to vindicate people's rights. Um, I mean, I think there's there's sort of a way that lawyers have uh, an optimism and probably have to have an optimism that um, they are able to um, marshal the right facts and marshal the right arguments to get the right result for their clients. And um, in the constitutional sense, when I worked for the ACLU, um, that was often the case, partly because we were almost always right um, when we, we didn't bring a case unless we were pretty sure that um, somebody's constitutional rights were being violated or somebody's civil rights were being violated. Um, and in that context, um, it was very often the case that, um, you know, if the municipality was banning speech or if um, 
a school district was um, violating student search and seizure rights, um, that, you know, we could rush into court, um, you know, explain how this was a violation of somebody's constitutional rights and get an injunction, get, get a remedy. Um, sometimes that could happen the same day. Um, and then uh, criminal court, which, um, you know, has been well documented to be deeply problematic. Uh, Michelle Alexander's, you know, sort of treatment of how um, the structure of the criminal law system, you know, is, is not, you know, you know, almost forces unjust results. That it's not just happenstance. Um, you know, is, is you know makes that clear. But at the same time, um, you know, in the criminal justice context, um, you know, at the very least, everyone is given a lawyer when they go to court. Um, that you know, people aren't expected to be able to make legal arguments by themselves um, and face a government lawyer by themselves. Um, so there is a way that you know that was what I understood law to be and what I was expected due process to be. And at the same time, you also expected to be able to appeal those things, right? If, um, you know, if you, you know, the nature of the beast is that one judge, you know, has to make a decision uh, in a case, but you have a chance to um, go to a higher court and say, you know, this person got it wrong. Um, let's calm down. Let's, you know, look at the law. Let's look at precedent. And let's review this and see if that actually makes sense. When I got to the immigration context, none of those sorts of things are uh, are part of the system. There's no, um, you know, there's certainly no right to counsel in the immigration context. The conceit is that um, immigrants, often non-English speakers, often children, um, certainly not lawyers, are able to stand in a immigration court and make an argument for them, themselves against the trained government lawyer who does this every day, day in and day out, right? Um, and what's more, um, several courts have, uh, including the Supreme Court, have remarked on the complexity of immigration law, right? That, you know, there are all these great quotes about how it's, you know, a labyrinthine system, that it's Byzantine, you know, that it's second only to the Internal Revenue Code and complexity in American law. Um, and we're asking non-citizens who, uh, you know, have no legal training to, to try and navigate that by themselves. There's no way a system like that is going to produce a just result. Um, the judges they're going in front of aren't judges. They're lawyers who work for the Department of Justice. Um, they have, um, and we saw this particularly under the Trump administration, but it's always been the case. They have pressures from their employer, the attorney general, um, which makes the system inherently unfair. Um, you know, I don't, you know, and as I sort of go to pains to say in the book, you know, there are not, you know, it's not necessarily that all immigration judges are bad. A lot of immigration lawyers, particularly in New York, have a lot of good things to say about a lot of the judges they appear in front of. Um, but the the system is set up in a way that they're not really in a position to, um, you know, one, consider all of the things they should be considering, and two, um, they're not in a position to necessarily um, render fair results. They're often not given the resources or the time to have a real hearing. Um, so, in, you know, in that way, it doesn't really look anything like you know, my understanding of what a court proceeding should look like. And then that sort of question of how do we, um, you know, make sure that they're reaching right the right results. Um, that has even been taken away. So, um, you know, one of the things I talk a lot about in the book is the amendments to the law that took place in 1996, uh, which made it, you know, expanded the grounds on which somebody could be deported, limited the discretion immigration judges had to consider context and grant relief. And then it also really limited courts' ability to review the decisions that immigration judges made to make sure that they're, um, consistent, that they're following the law, and that they're fair. Um, so all of those things um, sort of taken together uh, have created a system that um, you know, essentially lacks our understanding of fairness and, you know, and, and really isn't set up to reach fair results. Um, I mean, that's just not, not its goal. Fantastic. Um... Something that I appreciated um, so much about this book, um, particularly 
I think um, I think sometimes when we're thinking about um, legal systems, legal processes, that it it can be very easy to talk about them either um, as sort of a, a quick snapshot or as just sort of the black letter law. And something I, I really loved about this book was that there are um, there are these examples. So you know, for example, in chapter one, um, there's the example of Omar um, and that that case. Um, and even what you were just mentioning of um, the the situation in New York where um, immigration lawyers actually seem to um, think, I, I was actually surprised by how favorably um, a number of them thought about um, the immigration judges as as well. Um, and I was, I was thinking as well, just as you were talking, um, something that I think this book does so well is make it a bit more obvious um, to those who perhaps don't have the um, the background in you know the history of immigration law that um, what was happening under the Trump administration um, and even what continues to happen um, is not sort of a, a surprise it's not sort of a sudden thing but it's actually this sort of long um, this long process and um, this is sort of a, a long way of, of also asking you know I I was I was really um, surprised and taken aback by how um, things like minor crime, um, things like that actually were such a major factor in the immigration system. Um, and I was wondering if you if you'd be able to elaborate a little bit more on that. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's a great question. And actually, um, you know, makes me think that I probably have, have sort of started out of order, right? Because I've told you that we have this immigration system that is you know, wildly unfair, that it's actually pretty explicit about its contempt for the rights of immigrants, um, and that it's set up um, to, you know, probably regulate the flow of immigrants in, into the United States and not to render anything that we would commonsensically think of as a just result. Um, so, you know, that's kind of the end of the story, right? So the question is, how did we get to that? And, um, you know, I think the story of Omar is, is one of the ways I try and, um, you know, sort of explain, you know, wh why we've gotten to the, the point where, um, you know, somebody who lived pretty much the whole life in the United States and has committed one crime when they were 15 years old can be put in the system and essentially have their deportation be a foregone conclusion before they even get to open their mouth, right? Um, you know, and so, you know, just to be super quick, I mean, oh, you know, the story of Omar is this young man who gets into essentially a schoolyard fight, um, bad fight, cuts the other student with a box cutter, you know, particularly after September 11th, bad thing to do, particularly if you're, you know, Muslim and Arabic, um, you know, and gets gets convicted as an adult in New York, even though it happened when he was 15, because we have very, uh, they have been reformed to a certain extent, but when he was uh, a child, New York had some of the harshest juvenile justice laws in the country. Um, and, and sort of in the immigration context, that that one crime, even though he's never had done anything else, never been in trouble other than that, um, made him what immigration law calls an aggravated felon. And again, this is a, an artifact of these 1996 amendments. They're coming out of the Gingrich Republican contract with America um, Congress, although happily signed by the Clinton administration. So it's, it's, it's been a bipartisan effort, no doubt. Um, but um, the, these aggravated felon provisions essentially say, if you are a non-citizen, even a green card holder, right, a lawful permanent resident like he was, um, and you commit what we call an aggravated felon, which is a very expansive list, um, you know, even things that we think of as, as not particularly serious can be considered aggravated felons. In fact, um, it doesn't even have to be a felony under immigration law to be considered an aggravated felony. So people can commit um, misdemeanor offenses and not even get jail time and be aggravated felons because it's so broad. But anyway, um, you know, as a result of Omar being seen as an aggravated felon, the immigration judge wasn't allowed to consider anything about him as an individual and just had to order him deported once he decided he was an aggravated felon. And so, um, you know, my question is, you know, sort of how do we end up with laws that are so overbroad that, um, you know, we can deport, um, you know, children and a, a child that had a, um, 
uh, yeah, actually was um, evaluated and, um, you know, they found that he also had, um, you know, sort of a, a mental impairment that made him, uh, you know, both have trouble, you know, understanding the proceedings he was in, but also, um, you know, had trouble dealing with the social situation. So all of these extenuating circumstances that you think should be taken into account um, were, were not taken into account. Um, and, you know, for me, you know, I think that the process we see and, and you know, we see it historically, too, um, you know, with the Chinese Exclusion Act, with, um, you know, Trump's Muslim ban, um, with the 96 laws, is that um, the political sort of impetus to create harsher immigration laws or policies is cast as uh, the, a, a response to some sort of threat, usually terrorism or, you know, in the Chinese Exclusion Act case, you know, all of, uh, you know, the number of Chinese immigrants coming was seen as, a, you know, like an invading army. And so, um, you know, the government should be given free reign to address that. Um, you know, in 96, the narratives around undocumented around immigration sort of shifted from just talking about undocumented immigrants to sort of immigration, uh, you know, being the source of crime, being the source of uh, the threat to the fiscal health of the country, even though what's really happening was globalization, neoliberalism, which is what we're making people's lives harder. Um, but, you know, immigrants were sort of painted as a result of that. And, you know, the stories that were being pointed to were that, um, you know, there are these dangerous criminal aliens who are harming American citizens. So we have to pass really harsh laws. And then the laws that get passed are so overly broad that they sweep in their ambit people who bear no resemblance to the harm that the law is supposed to address. And the, you know, sort of part of it that makes it particularly pernicious is that um, the sort of problem is seen as so important that we have to suspend, um, you know, the usual rules that we would have, right? And invokes a state of exception that we have this invasion of criminal aliens. So we need to address it. And so um, the due process rights are limited. The, um, you know, right to seek review, to see if you even fit within the description of the harm that the law was created to address isn't available to you. Um, and so, you know, you end up with a situation uh, like Omar's case where, um, you know, a 15 year old with a mental impairment who has a schoolyard fight, even a bad one, um, is probably not the criminal alien threat to the nation that was contemplated when the laws were created. But they were created in such an overbroad fashion that he's swept within that definition. And then that state of exception also suspends the sorts of normal rules that you would expect um, in a criminal justice system or a, a legal system. Um, so he doesn't have the ability to even make the argument that he shouldn't be swept in that category in the first place. Um, so I think, you know, you know, for me, that is sort of the, you know, the way we get to a system that, um, you know, is so unjust is is that's kind of the mechanism that we see operating over and over. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Something that you you just touched on um, now and also something that was uh, throughout the book a bit was um, this idea that judges don't have enough discretion. Um, and reading this, I don't I was I was kind of surprised by this argument. It wasn't um, necessarily one that I had I had considered but the you know the way that you that you lay everything out with um the 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 examples of sort of how how people can be caught up by these overbroad laws um that have very serious consequences um for people caught up in them and I I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about the importance of um judicial discretion and why why this is um why this is such a major issue you know, within within the the immigration context that you're writing about. Yeah, um, I mean, it's so interesting because it's a you know it is the 
you know, perennial double-edged sword in the legal system um, that, you know, we want there to be context. We want there to be, um, you know, some Solomon-esque judge who can met out the right decision. Um, although really the cutting a baby in half is probably not a good decision either. Um, but at the same time, you know, if you give a judge too much discretion, then um, you know, you're inviting discrimination, right? We see that in the criminal justice context that, um, you know, sentence length, uh, you know, is, is definitely tied to race and class. Um, so, um, you know, it, you know, discretion is not a perfect answer to everything. Um, there needs to be um, a system where we both have judges, um, you know, able to exercise discretion in the sense of being allowed to consider all the relevant facts, being able to consider all of the context, and not just having the legislature issue these broad categories that sweep all sorts of people in them um, without any ability to consider, you know, what's the actual level of malfeasance uh, that the individual has committed. Uh, you know, and you know, and it's important to you know remember that in immigration law. You know, we're not talking about, um, you know, the criminal system where a judge can, you know, issue a, you know, a, find somebody guilty, but then, um, you know, give a lighter sentence if somebody is, um, you know, seems less culpable. I mean, in immigration, it doesn't matter why you're being deported. You get deported. There is no variation in the, the penalty, right? Um, so, uh, you know, if that's the case, we need to be able to have some sort of way for judges issuing those deportation orders to consider the the gradation and um, responsibility, the extenuating circumstances for why somebody may have broken immigration laws, um, you know, what's their family context, um, you know, how long they've been in the United States. I mean, at this point, the vast majority of undocumented people in the United States have been in the U.S. for over 13 years um, on average. Um, you know, in New York, the average person facing deportation has been in uh, the, the country for, I think, almost 16 years at this point. So, I mean, these are these are Americans, right? So the um, need for these kinds of things to be considered, you know, is, is very important unless you're going to, you know, unless you're willing to live with that overbreadth and unfairness I just talked about. Um, so, you know, one of the things that um, you know, happened in 1996 was a lot of that discretion was taken away from immigration judges. And so, um, you know, sort of one of the points I make, and, and mostly through talking to immigration lawyers who have been practicing for a very long time, is, um, is that, you know, there's a pretty big difference, a pretty big shift in how immigration proceedings worked between the pre-96 law and the post-96 law um, that, you know, both, it's both ratcheting up the number of things that you could get deported for, but it's also taking away the ability of judges to consider um, the equities of people's cases to understand the context of why they're in immigration court in the first place. Um, you know, and, and a lot of folks, you know, sort of pointed out in, in you know, in, in the pre-96 era, you, you know, you could actually conceivably see a non-citizen without a lawyer going in front of a judge and explaining their case and explaining, you know, who they are, who their family ties are, what their community ties are, and having the judge kind of weigh that up against the immigration violation and deciding whether it's fair to deport them or not. That that's been taken away. That's not possible anymore. Um, you know, in, in just a sort of raw statistical sense, I mean, you kind of see that, um, you know, in just the number of um, deportations in the pre and post um, context. I can't remember what it is, but it's like multifold. It's like, um, you know, I think the numbers of, you know, deportations in 96 were about 40,000 and it's, uh, you know, almost 10 times that now. Um, so, you know, that's, you know, a direct result of that change in law taking away discretion. Um, and then, you know, I give the one example of um, Jane, a, a, a woman who um, was put in jail for um, drug trafficking um, and was sort of on the cusp of that change in law. And her case kind of shows the difference between um, when the judge has discretion to make these kinds of decisions and, and when they don't. Um, you know, so she, she was in a domestic relationship uh, that was abusive, 
her um, partner was a, was dealing drugs. She sort of gets swept up in a drug raid um, and is is considered an aggravated felon because of of this drug charge. Uh, you know, in immigration law, drugs are about the worst possible thing you can get charged with. Um, despite the fact that uh, at this point, I think almost all of our recent presidents have admitted they're doing drugs. I don't know about Joe Biden, but. Um, you know, so, um, you know, nonetheless, immigration still sees it as like the most serious thing you know, possible. Um, and so, um, you know, under this change law in 96, you know, despite the fact that, um, you know, she was in this abusive relationship. Um, and then when she goes to jail, um, she takes advantage of every opportunity to reform herself and better herself. She um, finishes college in, in, uh, in, a, um, in jail in a um, program. Um, that uh, a local college is running. Uh, she ends up getting a master's degree and actually going into higher ed herself. Um, and none of that can be considered under the, the sort of post-96 laws. And so she's already deported. Um, but then because of a, a legal argument that gets made in front of the Supreme Court that says people whose convictions come from before 96 are entitled to the old laws, she's able to sort of say, no, wait, I get to make this argument that my equities can be considered like they used to be because this conviction uh, comes from, from that earlier day. Um, and once the judge is able to look at all of that, they're like, of course you don't deserve to be deported. Um, and so that's what we've lost, right? Um, by, by sort of making these broad legislative categories that don't allow judges to, to think. That's yeah. That's a that's a fantastic answer. Um, I I realize a little bit too that I'm I'm kind of jumping around the book, which I think also speaks to the complexities of um, the immigration system and the the complexities of conversations around migration and bureaucracies. Um, but I I wanted to sort of circle back to something that you had briefly touched on, and it's a a thread that I I found throughout the book, um, which is again I think perhaps a question of scope, um, but thinking about uh, neoliberalism, but also the need for labor, um, which seems to be a major motivator for a lot of people to migrate. But also I was surprised by the way that um, particular needs for labor really shaped the immigration laws and the the history of, of migration laws. Um, and I, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit, a little bit more about sort of how how labor, um, you know, work, things like that, was really part of part of this this broader landscape, the broader history, but also even you know the the contemporary context of of migration. Yeah, I mean that's that's a great question, and you know, obviously, sort of weaves its way through the book. I, I don't, you know, I don't think I probably analyze it directly enough, but um, it's sort of hard to ignore labor in the immigration context, right? Um, you know, immigration has, has actually been historically primarily a labor issue. Um, the, the, part, the Secretary of Labor used to be the government official in charge of the immigration system until World War II when it was switched to the Department of Justice. It was it was actually seen as a question of do we have enough workers? Um, and so, you know, that has, has certainly framed the um, sort of way the issue has been thought of historically. But I think, as you say, um, also is, is very much a part of the arguments we hear being mobilized now in terms of why uh, you know, undocumented migration is hurting "quote unquote" workers, um, but it, it also, you know, has you know created the actual infrastructure by which um, movement between the United States and migrant sending countries was created. Right. So, um, you know, the, the most obvious example would be um, the Bracero program in the way that um, when the United States felt it needed additional farm workers during World War II, um, it created this Bracero program whereby it uh, recruited, advertised, asked for migrant laborers from Mexico to come to the United States and, and work, uh, you know, quote unquote, lawfully. Um, and, and that continued um, long after World War II um, well into the 60s because it was so advantageous for uh, 
big agricultural interests. Um, and it's sort of interestingly, during that period of time, you also see the consolidation of agriculture into agribusiness um, as, as opposed to being something that was primarily uh, farmer owned farms. Um, and so that interest in having this cheap migrant farm labor um, you know, really drove um, migration from Mexico and created essentially, you know, the expectation and the infrastructure by which migrants from not just the border areas, but all through Mexico understood that they could come to the United States and work. Um, you know, the, you know, during the Brasero program, you know, they were advertising in Spanish on local radio stations all over Mexico. So, you know, the United States basically said, you know, please come to the United States and, and, and work. Um, that continued even after the Bracero program ended um, and, and was pretty much tacitly accepted. Um, uh, you know, even in the 1986 law that, um, you know, both created, quote, amnesty for uh, people who had been in the United States for a long time and for agricultural workers who had been in the United States, um, it, you know, that law was supposed to create stronger enforcement mechanisms, um, but they those enforcement mechanisms really carved out protections for employers who were hiring undocumented workers. It essentially made it um, you know, impossible to prosecute or punish an employer for hiring undocumented workers because the labor interests were so strong in, in preserving that. So, you know, right up until, you know, modern modern times, right, present day, uh, we, you know, we've, you know, tacitly at the very least accepted undocumented labor as a an economic benefit um, and the sort of change to seeing migration as a security threat as a threat to um, law and order as a threat to the economy of the united states either by taking jobs or by taking public welfare um, that should go to quote unquote americans uh, you know has is sort of a change that um it comes around in the 90s, you know, we see it with Prop 187 in California uh, in 94, where, um, you know, the, the, you know, state has a referendum that uh, tries to, um, you know, essentially make it illegal to be um, out of status in, in California, um, you know, tells government employees they have to turn in people, tries to ban the children of undocumented people from going to public schools, which is, constitute is uh supreme court is found is unconstitutional um so all of all of that um you know happens almost all of uh, prop 187 gets found to be unconstitutional and, and struck down but all the politicians realized that it was really popular and that the governor of california got reelected by campaigning on this and so when the 96 election rolls around um everybody is sort of jumping on that bandwagon pat buchanan runs um, and, and is sort of starts advocating to build a wall along the border. Uh, he calls it the Buchanan fence, but, um, you know, sort of, uh, you know, floats this idea that then gets taken up, right, to build a border wall. Um, you know, Clinton, um, you know, is and the Democrats get very anti-immigrant. And so um, there is this sort of shift where, um, you know, the political rhetoric is now that immigrants are dangerous and we should crack down and fortify and militarize the border um you know but at the same time you know both um migrants and american labor has been under the expectation that um you know this relationship will continue um so that you know there's really uh, you know a way that these immigration laws just don't consider um, the history or the context that people's lives have been um, constructed under and the expectations that they've been given, um, you know, and and they somehow think that because they've changed the narrative that um, they can change people's lives. Fantastic. And I guess just to to answer something that you you said just at the beginning of that, I think you did a, a great job of of considering migration. I just I I don't know. I was I was just really or, um, of of labor. I was just really curious to to hear more about that, just because it seemed like a really interesting. Um, again, I don't just sort of a, a thread, and there are so many threads with in talking about migration and bureaucracy um and sort of the the administration of um of of immigration um i don't know lack of a better term management yeah um 
something that I found really, really compelling in this um, in this book was a discussion about um, or the the theme about um, under resourcing or the resources that were available to various parties. Um, so uh, you made it very clear that. Again, you know, this this isn't anything new um, that, you know, even before the Trump administration, that judges were were overburdened. Um, but something that I, I found really, uh, I don't I, I, I realize it, you know, it might be a bit trite to say jaw dropping, but <laughs> jaw dropping um, in your in your fifth chapter where you're talking about um, the New York immigration or sorry, the New York Immigrant Family Unity Project. Um, and you, you mentioned in the conclusion that. Um, provide that they they did a follow-up study and providing universal legal representation um showed that uh successful case outcomes increased by over a thousand percent um that was just shocking to me sort of the the lack of the lack of resources available to migrants who are uh who are in detention or who may be encountering um an immigration judge or who might otherwise be you know in and around immigration courts um, and I, I would love to hear more about um, the New York Immigrant Family Unity Project because it seems it seems like such a uh, a very specific, concrete, real world example of potential ways to to make things a bit better for people in these these really you know specific, very quick ways. Yeah, yeah. That's I mean I think that's such an important point. Um, you know, and, and there is a way in, I think, immigration scholarship oftentimes where the criticism of the whole um, sort of makes you throw up your hands and be like, well, I mean, the only way to fix this is, you know, we need a more cosmopolitan and humane approach to, you know, everyone. And it's like, yeah, have you looked at the Senate lately? That's not going to happen in anytime soon. So, you know, are there things we can do within this system um, to at least, um, you know, help as many people as possible? And uh, the New York Immigrant Family Unity Project, NIFIP, um, you know, is sort of this amazing example of, um, you know, having a very radical transformation of the immigration system without changing a single law. Um, you know, so essentially, um, it came about, um, you know, because a court of appeals judge in uh, in the federal uh, courts in New York, the Second Circuit, which uh, sits in New York, um, you know, looked at, you know, these cases that were coming up and realizing that, um, you know, they were coming up because people didn't have lawyers or the lawyers they had were terrible. Um, and they were not making the legal arguments that could have helped these people or not making that or not getting the facts documented that could have helped these people. And so the courts were having to, um, you know, you know, affirm their deportation, even though he could see that, you know, somebody probably could have done something for them. Um, and so out of that came um, a study that looked at the sort of rate of representation and the impacts of not having representation in New York. Um, and, you know, sort of, you know, the sort of top line, uh, you know, message was uh, folks who were not, uh, who were not in detention and who had a lawyer in New York won their immigration cases 73% of the time. Folks who were in detention and didn't have a lawyer won their cases 3% of the time. And so it became really, you know, and there's some compounding factors in there, but, you know, it, it still became very clear that the reason people were losing their cases wasn't because they didn't have meritorious cases, not because they weren't entitled, even under these crappy laws, to some kind of relief, but because they weren't even able to access the relief that was available to them under this very unfair system. Um, and so, you know, as a result of that, um, you know, folks, uh, you know, at a lot of nonprofits, the Cardozo Law School, um, you know, a bunch of organizations, um, Vera Institute were able to lobby the city council to uh, start a pilot project to provide uh, immigrants who were in detention and were at 200% of the poverty line with an attorney. So it was essentially a universal representation system for indigent defendants like a uh, public defender system in the criminal courts. Um, 
you know, in, in the part they were able to do this by demonstrating that it was actually in the city's best interest, right? That the folks that were being deported uh, were part of the, they were New Yorkers, right? They were part of the city. They were, uh, you know, workers, they were family people who had children. Um, you know, they, uh, it was costing um, employers money when they lost a well-trained reliable employee who got deported. Uh, it was hurting families when, um, you know, a parent was deported. Uh, it was hurting the city when uh, a, a parent who was working was deported and uh, the parent uh, and the parent's children had to go on welfare or, or even were put in foster care. Um, so all of these things that were happening because of the dysfunction of the immigration system were actually hurting the city. Um, and so the argument was, you know, you can actually spend this, you know, it's going to cost you this money no matter what you do. So you might as well give people lawyers. And so, um, you know, the pilot project was, um, you know, run for a couple of years and showed, you know, as you say, you know, this huge success in terms of improving the rate at which people won their cases and has been expanded to full funding. Uh, so everybody who's detained and meets the criteria in New York receives an attorney. It's been expanded to uh, other parts of New York by the state legislature. I believe there are about 43 other municipal jurisdictions that have started some other version of this. Um, and so it has been, as you say, a very practical, real-world way to, um, you know, challenge these uh, inequities. Um, and then, uh, you know, the benefits have been, um, you know, both personal, right? That you know, it's it is worth doing just because people who didn't deserve to be deported aren't being deported. Uh, but it's also having systemic uh, impacts, right? So, um, you know, first of all, um, you know, these are. Um, excellent lawyers. This is what they do day in and day out. Um, so they're able to challenge the laws, both in terms of their individual clients, but also in terms of the laws themselves, right? They're able to say this law is unconstitutional, or you are misinterpreting this law. And we're going to make a challenge that goes to, um, you know, we're going to take it to the Court of Appeals. Um, and, and through doing that, they've been able to um, change the immigration laws, at least in their jurisdiction, um, you know, not just for their clients, but for everybody. Um, you know, it's been, you know, one of the big victories has been on, uh, you, know, uh, you know, like I said, uh, controlled substances is, you know, sort of one of the worst things uh, you can get uh convicted of in, in immigration contexts, um, and they've been able to uh, find some relief for folks in that context with a couple cases where they've uh, gotten the interpretation of the law changed. Um, you know, so that's one aspect of it that's creating systemic change. And another is, um, you know, they've been, um, you, know, you know, also able to see, um, you know, how the system works, right? How are their clients treated, not just as individuals, but, you know, how are all the uh, immigrant detainees in New York treated? Um, and so they, you know, they actually can you know, advocate for their clients, um, you know, not just in terms of deportation cases, but in terms of, um, you know, conditions, how uh, detention uh, facilities are run, how people are treated when they're in detention. Uh, obviously, with COVID, that's become all the more important. Um, and then, you know, they, they also, um, you know, sort of similarly have been able to sort of paint a profile of who their clients are and say, you know, you know, let's think back to why these laws were enacted in the first place. They were enacted because the United States is being overrun by dangerous criminal aliens. And so we need to have these really harsh laws to protect ourselves. And then, you know, you can look at uh, the folks who NIFIP is representing. Um, and, you know, who are they? Oh, well, um, they're basically like every other New Yorker, right? They have the same labor force participation. Um, the you know, like I said earlier, um, you know, most of them have lived in the United States. The average is they've lived in the U.S. for 16 years. Um, you know, I think a third of them have children in the United States. Um, no, I think almost half have children in the United States. A third of them are married to someone in the United States. Right. So this is, you know, really who is impacted by these laws. Um, so, it, it, you know, it allows us to change the sort of narrative and ask ourselves if, if, if this is really how the laws are playing out in reality um, and, and it looked nothing, you know, and the people we're deporting look nothing like the people we said we were afraid of, you know, maybe we should change the laws. 
So I could um, I could talk to you about this book for hours, but um, I I realize we are um, quickly approaching the end of our of our time together. And I, something that you that you mentioned um, at the beginning of even um, as as you were writing this, every day the Trump administration would come out with something new, and so having to sort of constantly update things. Um, and, you know, again, with the caveat that uh, talking about migration can be sort of taking a, a quick sort of temporal snapshot. Um, it was it was interesting for me to be reading this um, at a time when uh, the news of Afghan uh, refugees is in the news in the U.S., as well as um, some really upsetting news coming out about uh, Haitian asylum seekers. And so I was, I was wondering if you would have, if you um, could, you know, tell us a little bit about sort of how you see this project or um, this, this sort of work, uh, you know, happening, <laughs> happening now, or um, if there's, if, if this is a, I'm going to re-ask the question. Um, <laughs> if there's, I'm, I'm wondering if, if you're, um, or I'm, I'm wondering how you are considering these questions that you bring up um, in this book. Um, now in the in the sort of contemporary climate, um, how you're how you're thinking of you know the changes that have even happened you know post post Trump administration because we're in a, we're under the Biden administration now, um, and if you could give us you know any uh, any insight into um, into sort of the the current projects that you're working on or um, ways that you see this particular project um, still speaking to um, speaking to the the news really today. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a good question, and it's really hard to answer, right? Um, I mean, I think in you know, in one way, I, you know, I feel as though you know a lot of what I'm trying to say in the book, at least in the in its broadest sense, uh, is you know helps me understand what's going on, right? So, you know, there is a there is a level at which U.S. immigration law, bipartisanly has been about dehumanizing migrants, dehumanizing non-citizens, and thinking them as someone who is entitled to less, entitled to less in terms of their legal rights and entitled to less in terms of what they should expect from life and the, the sort of dignity and recognition they should get. And I think, you know, it is clear from the um, sort of Biden administration's response to its handling of Afghanistan that, um, you know, they just did not provide any real consideration for the lives of people who um, their actions, they being the United States government's actions, had imperiled, right? That these are people who, um, you know, know, agreed to work with the United States, agreed to take part in the nation building project that the United States started in Afghanistan. Um, and then, uh, you know, we're essentially not thought of as, um, you know, entitled to uh, consideration when it was time to go. Um, you know, in talking to uh, lawyers that have worked specifically on this issue, um, you know, they, it came as no surprise to them that, um, you know, something like this would happen. The um, people with special special immigrant visas applications, uh, which is primarily or a, a lot of the folks they were talking about, um, had been, you know, pushing to get those adjudicated and uh, issued, you know, not just months ago, years ago. Um, and and the it just wasn't seen as a priority, um, you know, and so, you know, there is a way that, you know, I think both in that and certainly in the Haitian context, um, you know, the, you know, Groups of non-citizens are just not seen as rights-bearing individuals. Um, so, you know, so I think that's definitely part of it. I mean, in terms of you know where I've gone, you know, with that sort of overall thought process in other contexts, um, you know, the you know one other project that I have worked on recently is looking at the Australia policy towards asylum seekers who try to arrive by boat, um, and they. Um, instituted this policy, uh, you know, that they called no benefit, where essentially if you were an asylum seeker, um, and the vast, vast majority of asylum seekers that came to Australia by boat were found to be genuine asylum seekers, something like 85%. Um, So, you know, these are actual refugees that were trying to seek uh, refuge in Australia. 
Um, but Australia said, no, if you come in an irregular fashion, right, if you, if you come by boat, um, we are, you know, we're not just going to detain you while we decide your immigration case, decide whether you're an actual uh, refugee entitled to protection under international law. Even if we decide that you are a refugee, which happened in the vast, vast majority of cases, we're not going to let you uh, come to Australia. We're going to resettle you in a third country. Um, and they uh, placed people in uh, an island on, uh, that's part of the nation of Papua New Guinea on Mayas Island, and then the island nation of Nehru. Um, and along with uh, another anthropologist, Paige West, uh, I, I did a project um, where we looked at that process in Papua New Guinea. And, um, yeah, you know, and again, there, you know, it's, there's a lot of complexity to it, but, you know, I think the underlying you know, part of it is that, you know, countries like the United States, countries like Australia feel like they can use the argument of their sovereign border as a way to, um, you know, essentially end any conversation about what they owe other people in the world. Um, so that's sort of one of the ways I've been, been trying to think about, you know, maybe outside the U.S. context. Fantastic. Um, that's, that, sounds, that sounds like a really compelling um, additional project as well. Um, and I, I want to just thank you so much for being on the show today. I, I really enjoyed our conversation. And uh, take care. Thank you. This was great.